Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. I'm Nora Lesserson, a PhD student in history at University College London. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Christopher Shecklian. Dr. Christopher Shecklian currently serves as the director of the Krikor and Clara Zohrab Information Center, a research library and presentation space attached to the Eastern Diocese of the Armenian Church of America. Dr. Shecklian is trained as an anthropologist, receiving his PhD in anthropology in 2017 from the University of Chicago. His work focuses on Armenians as an ethno-religious minority, secularism and minority rights, the Armenians of Turkey, and the role of the Armenian Apostolic Church in Armenian history and thought. He has been a Manugian postdoctoral fellow in the Armenian Studies program at the University of Michigan and a visiting assistant professor at Wesleyan University, and he currently serves on the Executive Council of the Society for Armenian Studies. He's currently working on the monograph based on his dissertation, tentatively titled Singing the City, Armenian Liturgy and the Politics of Minority Belonging in the Republic of Turkey. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Nora. Thanks for having me and thanks for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. So let's first talk about your dissertation, which you completed in 2017, uh, a different, a lifetime ago at this point. Mm-hmm. So could you concisely describe your fieldwork for us, you know, the who, what, where, when, why, and how, and in turn, could you speak a little bit about your role as an ethnographer or an anthropologist, uh, especially one studying a community that you both were and were not a part of? Yeah, thank you. That's a a great question, especially that last part. It's something that's really um, preoccupied me uh, methodologically. I actually, I taught a methods class in in anthropology at the University of Chicago. And so this is something that's been on my mind a lot. But um, yeah, first, so my my dissertation is called Theology in the Community, the Armenian Minority Tradition and Secularism in Turkey. So that lays out some of the contours of what I was looking at and, and hoping to do. And so you know, I'm, I'm trained in anthropology. I did my undergraduate in anthropology as well. And when I first started doing what anthropologists uh, very euphemistically call exploratory fieldwork, which usually means just kind of going fun places to see what <laughs> might be interesting, um, you know, I was, I was at the time still considering doing work in the Republic of Armenia. Um, but I had recently taken uh, just a kind of pleasure, historical, genealogical trip to Turkey. And the the extent to which secularism is a sort of live public debate in Turkey really struck me. And this is something that my advisors at uh, Berkeley, where I did my undergrad, had, you know, secularism was sort of a a central conceptual topic in much of the work that I'd already been doing. And I was so struck by the the idea that this was sort of a, a live topic of debate, you know, the question of secularism. You know, I think here in America, for instance, you know, we talk about the separation of church and state, but the secularism itself is not really sort of the main term of the debate. So I was quite struck by that. And um, what the dissertation tried to do is to take the sort of legal parameters of the Republic of Turkey, especially regarding secularism, and put that in conversation with the main institutions for Armenians in Turkey in order to figure out what the parameters of kind of, you know, minority existence is. And ultimately, Um, I looked at a number of major institutions and did research with them. So most centrally, I spent time with the Armenian Apostolic Church. Um, You know, most Armenians uh, in general and most Armenians in Turkey are are members of the Armenian Apostolic Church. Of course, there are Armenian Catholics, Armenian Protestants, as well as plenty of, you know, non-religious Armenians. But um, I spent a lot of time with that sort of major institution of the Apostolic Church. Uh, I spent a lot of time with the Hrant Dink Foundation, um, and also spent time looking at some of the other, what we might call sort of almost, um, you know, subsidiary institutions, largely the Vakifs. So we'll, we'll, I'll come back to these, but, um, you know, looking at schools, churches, and then also spending time with newspapers. And so basically kind of trying to take a, a kind of institutional map of the spaces where Armenians were present and think about how the legacy of the Armenian church and Armenian theology on the one hand and the sort of legal parameters on of the Republic of Turkey on the other are shaping these spaces and shaping the possibilities for what minority looks like minority life looks like in those spaces so that's sort of the the work that I set out to do and um, you know, as you alluded to, one of the one of the sort of really interesting things about the work is, of course, you know, I I, I am 
Armenian. Um, and even sort of more importantly for the work, I am a deacon of, I'm an ordained deacon of the Armenian Apostolic Church. So when I, when I went to Turkey, you know, I was able to navigate these spaces in a really particular way. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a citizen of Turkey. I am not a, you know, I'm a fourth generation Armenian American who learned Armenian later in life. So in a way, I also was very much not of the the group that I was studying. And, and this is a, a kind of long and interesting question, especially in anthropology. There's a really famous article uh, by Kieran uh, Naranyan from 93, How Native is the Native Anthropologist? And this is something that's given me a lot of thought over the years. You know, to what extent do you say, oh, I am studying, you know, my group? And does that change things? And this is a question that I've I've grappled with methodologically, and it, it finds its way into the pages of the dissertation a little bit. And, you know, I think at the very least, what we could say is that I had access to and was able to navigate some of these spaces as a result of my position as a deacon, as an Armenian speaker, even if, you know, a relatively poor one at times. You know, the, the, the point being that I was able to come into these spaces and navigate them and find a place even. And so, you know, one of my favorite things is that one of the churches that I spent a lot of time going to, towards the end of my time there, you know, almost two years with, with breaks in between, um, at the end of my time there, I realized that I had sort of become the de facto deacon of this little church um, because it, it was a, a smaller church that was in a neighborhood that was not a kind of major Armenian center at the time. And um, not a lot of altar servers were coming on Sundays when they started up Sunday services again. And I had been going there during the week. And slowly, I kind of was the most regular deacon there. And there was a big day when one of the bishops of the city was there. And um, basically, they sort of were like, well, you know, you need to do these things because you're the deacon here. And and it was this sort of um, both very... Uh, eye-opening and sort of um, scary moment almost where I realized how uh, how sort of um, I was seen by other people in the community as a result of my own, you know, positionality there. So that's a really, I think, an interesting thing that I've thought about methodologically that, you know, like I said, at the very least, it gave me certain kinds of access as an anthropologist, as an ethnographer, and I'll, I'll use both, um, you know, hmm. to describe the work that I was doing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, as you did in this conversation, I think you successfully used that tension to make points. And I think that's one of the best things you could have done in that situation, which is it opened up conversations around, say, the use of language or being an outsider and inside you, uh, insider allowed you to sort of uh, productively engage with the environment in a way that I think made the anthropology or the ethnography even stronger. So I really liked that aspect of the um, dissertation. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's 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 I for me, that was really important. You know, in the in the chapter on the newspapers, for instance, I was constantly told, you know, um, well, if you want to improve your, your, your Armenian, well, you need to read the newspapers. You know where to buy the newspapers, don't you? So it became a kind of, you know, map into the community and what people thought was important based off of certain pedagogical things that I needed as an individual, not simply as an ethnographer, but, you know, because people saw me as an Armenian, as an Armenian deacon who needed to improve in certain ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And something I've been thinking about even as a historian or a historian in training is kind of the use of the first person. And I always find it's very useful and compelling and evocative. And even though you're trained to, you know, uh, maybe not do that. I'm really playing with the ideas in which it is a powerful tool. And so I really like that you were able to use it. Um, so I guess remind us exactly what years you were in Istanbul before I ask your next question. Yeah. So um, I, the, the bulk of my fieldwork was conducted between 2012 and 2014. Um, I had some preliminary trips before that. Uh, the very first time I visited uh, was 2008. But yeah, the bulk of my fieldwork was conducted between 2012 and 2014. Okay. So in those years, I guess specifically, or to the extent that you can speak beyond those years, what are some of the ways in which the Armenian community of Istanbul acts or represents itself as a community? 
Yeah, this is a really important question. And actually, the, the term that you use right there represents itself is a, a major sort of conceptual problem that I spent a lot of time kind of trying to work through in the dissertation. You know, I mean, community itself is a, a relatively, you know, it seems very obvious, but is, you know, sort of conceptually a rather fraught term. And, you know, the question of representation is, of course, you know, brings in all kinds of issues. And this is something that I spent a lot of time thinking through, you know, I mean, in the Ottoman and in the, um, you know, Turkish case, thinking about, you know, representative government has a, a long trajectory. You know, I think the most famous article is is Roderick Davison's, you know, the advent of the principle of representation in the Ottoman Empire. But, you know, sort of thinking through the development of a certain kind of political representation is is something that's really important. Uh, but then, you know, there's what we might call a cultural or even a kind of semiotic representation, which is, you know, how does the community present itself or how does it get, um, you know, sort of pictured by not only themselves, but for consumption outside of the community within Turkey and beyond, right? And this is a really sort of interesting question that I spent a lot of time looking at the sort of debates over that in a way. So, you know, those debates play out in two ways. One is the sort of the question of, we might ask, you know, who speaks for Armenians in Turkey, right? This is a really crucial question. And historically, of course, the main answer had been the Armenian patriarch of Istanbul, the Armenian apostolic patriarch of Istanbul. And, you know, the, the Euro historian, the Ottoman historians listening know very well how, you know, problematic that was at varying times in history, especially with relation to the you know Armenian Catholics and Armenian Apostolics in the 19th century, things like this. Um, but the idea that there's a sort of easy answer to who speaks for the Armenians in Turkey is at this point, you know, totally non-existent. And at times, the patriarchate as an institution continues to play that role. Um, major figures. Uh, within the Vakif system. So these Vakifs are uh, kind of charitable endowments that also become these big foundations. And they're the major sort of material basis for the Armenian community in Turkey. So Vakifs include all of the churches, but also the schools, um, orphanages, and crucially, the major Armenian hospitals, of which Surpurgic Holy Saviors is, is the, the biggest and, and most important, um, you know, financially of all the Vakifs, actually. And so the head of that Vakif, um, Bedroshinolu, often, often is somebody who sort of speaks for the community. And then people push back on that and they say, well, who says that he gets to speak for the community? So on the one hand, this question of representation of, you know, what is the Armenian community in Turkey is a question of who gets to speak for the Armenian community. And there's no obvious answer because there's no fully constituted system by which that works. So the Vakifs uh, are a really crucial one. And there is now one non-Muslim uh, representative of all of the Vakifs. They're sort of euphemistically called the Community Foundations which encompasses all non-Muslim foundations, there's one non-Muslim representative on the, um, on, the, on the sort of the board of the Directorate General of Foundations. But that at times, right now it's an Armenian, but at times, for a long time, it was a, a, a man from the Greek community named Laki Vingas. Um, so that would be one place where you could say, oh, this person sort of, you know, is in a position uh, to sort of mediate between the community and the government. Well, that person is not always an Armenian, and it's it's only one position, and it's only dealing with the Vakifs. So this idea, it, there's no sort of obvious place where we can say, aha, here is the sort of speaker for the Armenian community. And so actually a lot of what my dissertation was doing was looking at sort of contestation over the question of representation, over, you know, who gets to speak or... Uh, you know, speak for the community sort of politically, but also, you know, explain or describe or picture what the community looks like. So on the one hand, you know, the, the patriarchate, of course, is going to emphasize the Christian nature and the apostolic church and the role of the churches and the centrality of the church vakifs and all of these things. Whereas, you know, 
um, Agos, the Huron Dink Foundation. Um, you know, there, there are other, um, Norzar Tonk, for instance, some of these uh, organizations that are, that are newer are going to have a different idea of what is central to what it means to be an Armenian in Turkey. So, again, a lot of the work that I was doing in the dissertation was actually about the contestation over who gets to say what that community looks like and which institutions do you work from and how do you do the politics of sort of smaller institutions. So the Vakifs, for instance, become a really important site uh, because they represent such um, material wealth and property and location uh, to, to do certain kinds of projects, they become a place of contestation themselves. Who's in charge of the Vakifs? Um, there was a major push to sort of democratize the electoral process for who sits on the Vakif boards. So these become sites of contestation over who gets to do politics for Armenians in Turkey, who speaks for Armenians, who gets to sort of draw the picture of what the community looks like. So, um, you know, I think I've, this is a roundabout way of answering what you're saying. You know, I've pointed to some of what I would consider some of the major nodes, institutions and actors in the Armenian community in Turkey. But I would also sort of emphasize that a lot of what I was trying to do was to sort of point to the contest precisely over the representation of the community. Yeah, and I think as you were speaking, I was thinking, okay, well, this is a little bit in a way analogous to you using the um, tension of you as ethnographer and member of the community um, in the same way. The process is the thing in some ways. Uh, that conversation, that contestation in some ways is the representation. And so you are representing that process, which is the reflection of the community. And I think to not shy away from that complicated reality and in fact to embrace it is, is powerful and, um, and useful. And so I'm also struck by, of course, the, the role of institutions in what you're laying out and these, the nodes of this conversation, as you've said, and how similar, if not exactly the same, they are as to what I'm reading about in the 19th century with Armenians in Istanbul. And you explicitly create continuities between that time period and talk about the ways in which certain things like, okay, the millet or these legal categories were sort of codified in the 19th century. So you make these connections. But even mm -hmm. beyond that, I was just really struck at the continuities between um, ways in which things were developed in the 19th century and how we still see them today, say in 2013, uh, Istanbul. Was that something you were thinking about as you were working? Yeah. So, I mean, I am my... I, I, I joke that my my intellectual grandfather is Talal Assad, who is a, <laughs> a very important scholar, not only within anthropology, but within religious studies, um, all kinds of places. Um, both my my instructors at Berkeley and my advisor, Hussein Agrama at the University of Chicago are, um, you know, trained or highly influenced by Talal Assad. So I, I joke that I, I sort of get to him by multiple genealogies, which is, of course, you know, <laughs> one of his major uh, ideas and concepts that, you know, he takes from Foucault and ultimately from Nietzsche to think about um, the way that a, a kind of contingent present is predicated upon what happened in the past, right? So it's not, you know, genealogy, you know, Foucault's sort of famous essay statement on it is, is Nietzsche genealogy history. And, you know, he's very clear that a genealogical method is is different than a historical method. And so, you know, one, it has to do with where you start from, but it also has to do with, you know, how you trace those continuities. So for me, they are really important, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm interested in what, what is continuous and what is not. But I think the way that I think about it genealogically is to sort of think about, okay, look at here we have this institution, the Vakif, that is still clearly crucial in Armenian life today. And why is it? so crucial? How did it get to become so crucial? Um, you know, what ways does it reflect changes over the past 200 years in that institution such that, you know, it becomes a site of contestation over, you know, over political representation, over what you do with the community? So those continuities form an explicit part of the work that I do, not necessarily because they're continuous or because there are resonances. And there, there are in many cases, you know, I, I, the more history I read, the more I'm like, oh man, you know, these arguments between 
you know, major figures of, you know, the, the sort of the Amira class and the patriarchate in the 1700s and 1800s <laughs> feels so much sometimes like these debates between, you know, Shirinolu and some of the, you know, clergy and all, you know, it, the, the resonances do feel really powerful. But for me, I think the important thing is the sort of genealogy of those concepts and of those institutions, right? So the Vakif is something that goes through major transformations to get where it is today, yet nonetheless retains, you know, kind of um, little bits of conceptual and institutional baggage from all of those, all of those transformations, you know, so of course, you know, during the genocide were liquidation laws, um, you know, sort of confiscation of property, a declaration that um, properties were abandoned, which is like the the craziest euphemism that could be, of course, (laughs) properties that were quote unquote abandoned, you know, and this is, um, uh, Tanar Akjam and Umid Kurtz, The Spirit of the Laws, really, I think, deals with this. And in, in, you know, there are other books as well, but that one really lays out the sort of the legal way in which this property question transformed. And so, you know, the fact that there were there, there already was a ministry of Vakf um, in the Ottoman Empire that needed dealing with and was dealt with legally during the genocide and during the Young Turk regime, which then those laws were taken up and continued in certain ways in the early Republican period, most crucially the 1935 law on foundations. This then sets the parameters for what it looks, you know, what the Armenians in Turkey still have today, um, which vakifs they have, how much financial security those vakifs have. Uh, the way that the elections take place for the Vakif boards, all of those things that are are crucial to the present reality of Armenians in Turkey can be sort of, you know, traced back again, genealogically through these transformations. So it's about taking the sort of contingencies of the present and thinking about, you know, where, you know, and things could have been different, of course, at any moment, things could have been different, but they weren't. And they get us to where we are today. So those that's how I think about that. And, you know, you mentioned the Millet system as well. You know, the same same thing, thinking about those transformations. You know, what does Millet mean? How has that set the parameters? Um, You know, Lerna Akmechiolu makes an argument about the continuity. She's got this really wonderful idea of secular dimitude. Um, You know, I think about it a little bit differently. But the point is, is that it's very clear that these concepts, these ideas and these institutions all have a sort of genealogy from our contingent present that stretch back into, you know, certainly the late Ottoman period, if not, if not before. And so for me, it's a question of needing, you know, you, one must understand why the Vakifs look the way they do today if you want to be able to fully understand what they are doing and why they are so centrally and crucially important to Armenians and Turkey today. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess once again, you're kind of tracing, diagramming a process um, or the genealogy uh, to sort of fully understand what it is you are seeing uh, in the present. And so, again, I think that's a really powerful way to do that. And so you mentioned Talal Assad, who actually my introduction to him was through Islamic studies, which I think is a good (laughs) transition to our next question, which is that I was really excited to see that you have a chapter on the cult of prayer. Um, I've often thought about the cult of prayer and its relationship to the urban experience, but I haven't really been able to read much about it. Um, So I guess... Can you tell us a bit about this chapter and its role in the dissertation? And I guess also just start in case some of our listeners aren't fully aware, explain exactly what the culture prayer is. Right. So thank you. And this is I'm, I'm glad that you direct our attention there, because this is in, in many ways, I feel that the dissertation, if, if it is supposed to anyway, is kind of build and culminate <laughs> in this final chapter, wherein a lot of the earlier work that I was doing on representation on the specific institutions sort of sets the parameters for this final chapter. So I, I'm glad that you are, are directing us there and that you sort of caught that. Um, so basically what I was looking at is that, you know, so the, the, the Islamic call to prayer that happens five times a day um, is, is in Turkey and in many Islamic countries sort of broadcast uh, or done live, depending on where you are, through the minarets of mosques at the times where 
prayer is supposed to be done according to the sort of tenets of Islam. So one should pray five times a day, and the call to prayer basically says, okay, everybody, now is one of those times, come pray, please. And one of the one of the wonderful things, actually, it was a really funny instance with my advisor who works in Egypt. Apparently, Turkey is one of the only places where the call to prayer is different, musically speaking, um, mm-hmm. for each of the five times. So um, in many different, I, I, and this was, you know, I was talking about this and my advisor was like, what are you, what are you saying? Like, it's yeah. a prayer. And it's like, no, no, no. Like in the morning, it sounds like this. And in the afternoon, it sounds like this. And so this became a really interesting um, moment because what is happening is that those, the, the sort of musicality of reciting the call to prayer works along the musical modes that are sort of common throughout the Middle East. So we might know these modes, you know, musical mode is, uh, you know, more, it's a, it's a kind of musical building block that's a little bit different from a scale. And a mode, um, you know, has certain characteristic turns of phrase, but also has these kind of, you know, characteristic melodic patterns. And so you can identify these different, different modes. And in, um, you know, in Turkish, as well as in other parts of the Middle East, they're, they're known as makam. And this modal system of music, there's a there's a kind of similar modal system of music that takes place in the Armenian Apostolic Church, where it's called sign, which, you know, we can translate as voice as well as, as mode, actually. And I had this really fascinating encounter that just kind of blew my mind and sets the stage for this chapter, which is that I was sitting um, drinking tea with a group of altar servers after after divine liturgy after Badarak one Sunday, which was you know the very common thing for me to do, and we were sort of sitting around and just talking. And the the early afternoon call to prayer that you know depending on the time of year it's around one o'clock. The early afternoon call to prayer began, and everybody kind of listened for a second. And one of the people present says, "Well, is that sign?" I think it was Tagen. And so what she had done was to identify the Islamic call to prayer musically using the modal system of the Armenian Apostolic Church. And this just sort of like, this was like, for me, was quite mind-blowing because I had spent time singing. I spent a lot of my time kind of learning a lot of the musical stuff. This was one of the ways that I engaged with people there because musically I was far inferior to like most 10-year-olds in Istanbul, actually. (laughs) And so I was like, all right, I'm going to take this advantage, you know, take this opportunity to really learn as much about the liturgical music that I can. And the opposite often happened, which is to say that Armenians in Turkey who might have had some musical training um, as children or at university, would often use the Turkish Arabic makam names to identify the musical modes in the church. So they would say something like, you know, oh, you know, today's hymn is going to be in Hijaz. And that one always kind of made sense to me because I thought, okay, that's fine. This is what they're steeped in. This is the way that they hear it. But to hear the reverse to me suggested something really, really powerful. And what it suggested to me was a way that if a Armenian is well trained enough, so this gets into, you know, this is this is good Assadian, you know, Foucauldian <laughs> formation of the subject, right? If one is a sort of properly trained, affectively attuned liturgical subject, is what I like to call them, if one is a sort of well trained liturgical subject, then one can sort of hear in the urban landscape, not just the dominant religious tradition, but can hear their own religious tradition in that. And to me, this became a sort of powerful way of thinking about how Armenians might be part of the urban fabric of Istanbul, you know, a city that is not made for them, a city that, you know, at times in Turkish history has very explicitly rejected Armenians, right? This is not the idea that Istanbul is for Armenians would be sort of silly in some ways. Yet, Yet they find themselves, it's, it's home, right? They therefore are a minority placed within this urban fabric. And thinking through this gave me the opportunity to think about how that might look. What does it mean to be a, in this case, religious minority in an urban fabric? How does one belong 
as a minority. And this gave me a way of thinking, you know, not just about the legal conditions or even the institutional conditions, but to take it another step further and to think about how a sort of, um, you know, an emotional, sensorial, trained disposition is part of what it means to be a minority at all, and especially a minority in an urban setting. Yeah, I mean, I I found this section really powerful as someone who, um, I I have a positive reaction when I hear the call to prayer, which I almost felt bad about when I was reading the chapter and understood all the ways in which that could be seen as uh, something maybe I shouldn't be having a positive reaction to. But I liked the way in which you described, say, an Armenian's engagement with the call to prayer, which very explicitly is a voice. It is something that requires a response. I mean, this woman is having a very different response than the the response that they're seeking, but it is still a call and response, and I found that very moving and just a really productive section of the dissertation. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm with you, Nora. I'm one of these, you know, I think for many Many people who have spent any time in the Middle East, it's a very kind of evocative, you know, transportative, um, you know, sensory and sono, you know, sonic experience. So I, I also have these kinds of things. But, you know, what I think was interesting for me was thinking about how different, you know, it became a kind of heuristic, right? Different mm-hmm. people had different reactions to it, which right. tells you something. Exactly. Exactly. It's very, it's super interesting. And I think it's a very uh it's the word generative topic for for future thought. So I guess let's switch gears a little bit. I've had a chance to read a chapter you've written for a forthcoming volume on Armenian material objects. If you could just briefly summarize that chapter for us and perhaps describe how it builds on or speaks to your dissertation. Yeah, so um, the the chapter, so the the volume is coming out of a a wonderful graduate workshop, um, the the annual graduate workshop in Armenian studies that takes place at the University of Michigan. And it was actually, I was a postdoc already. And when I saw the topic, I said, nope, I'm going to be there. And I I managed to convince (laughs) people that I should be be present there. And it was a really wonderful conversation. And um, my particular chapter is actually taking Armenian theology uh, specifically Christology, which is sort of the reflection on the question, you know, who is Jesus Christ? And thinking about the particular Armenian res- answer to that question and how it might tell us something about about the material world. And I mean, that sounds a little far-fetched at first, but this is, it, it builds on the work that I've done before because one of my questions that I've I've just been grappling with for a really long time is basically like, you know, what does theology do in the world, right? You know, theology can be a wonderfully um, exciting uh, intellectual exercise. It also, you know, hopefully shapes the lives of certain religious subjects. You know, again, what I often call a liturgical subject. But I'm also really interested in the question, you know, how does theology sort of spill out into the world? And does it? And how, you know, how can we think with it and engage with it? Um, you know, within anthropology, there's been a, a really interesting turn to kind of think that relationship. There's a great article by Joel Robbins, Anthropology and Theology, an Awkward Relationship. And I, <laughs> that's a generative um, piece for me. But what I've been trying to do, and it, it emerges a little bit in the dissertation, and, and I'm, I'm sort of pulling that thread a little bit in this chapter, is to think of theology as a sort of um, full partner discourse for theoretical, conceptual, and philosophical arguments. So in this case, uh, you know, a volume about material objects, you know, right now within the social sciences and beyond, you know, there's a big sort of turn to ontology, materiality, um, and there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, You know, some of them are ethical, some of them are related to the question of the environment. I think that's a big reason why we're really interested in, you know, the material world and the way that we treat the material world. Um, uh, You know, obviously climate change is, I think, one of the sort of reasons why it's become so important. But, you know, this is a, a big sort of philosophical, theoretical conversation that is happening across disciplines, right? Um, You know, what's called the ontological turn, the idea of the Anthropocene. These are big ideas that are all really related to the question of, you know, what is, you know, what is matter? What is, you know, what is it at the heart of 
you know, the world? What is the difference between humans and everybody else? Is there a difference between humans and everybody else, right? What makes that sort of relationship tick and special? These are sort of some of the questions that emerge from these debates. And my sort of insight in the chapter is, okay, well, look, the Armenian church has, along with what are called the other Oriental Orthodox churches, Coptic, Syriac, among other churches, um, have a, a slightly different response to this question about who Jesus Christ is. And without getting too deep into it now, it posits the relationship between the material and the spiritual, between the human and the divine, in a different way than Western Christianity, and, and as well as you know what is known as Eastern Orthodox Christianity. It's, it's a different understanding of that. And so my goal in the chapter is to say, okay, if there is a different understanding of this relationship between human and divine, spiritual and material, why not use that to enter this conversation about materiality, about the environment and the created world, right? If, if the way Armenians have thought about creation, God's created world, is different than the way that, say, other Christians or philosophers have thought about it, then there's no reason that that Armenians with a kind of, you know, Armenian discourse cannot enter these incredibly generative and, uh, you know, highly important conversations about the material world, about ontology, about, you know, human agency, object agency, all these kinds of, you know, there's, I could, there's all kinds of debates here that we don't need to get into, you know, um, but the, 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 the goal is to take that discourse um, you know, coming out of theology and to use it to enter these philosophical, theoretical conversations. And in this chapter, I'm doing it specifically around the question of sort of material, you know, materiality and the material spiritual kind of divide. Are you able to succinctly describe the Armenian difference? Sure. So I, 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 I think I can, you know, I, 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 get, I, I do this so much, I think I can do it relatively, relatively succinctly. So the <laughs> breaking point is, is the, the Council of, of Chalcedon, Chalcedon in 451, and that becomes the, the, the formula that all of the churches, you know, the, the, the Western churches, and I include the Eastern Orthodox Church in that, um, that becomes the, the statement for those churches, you know, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Catholic, you know, basically m most of Christendom. And that formula comes up with this really succinct idea because the, the, the problem, the problem was, okay, if Jesus Christ is, you know, fully God and fully human, how does that work? That seems, you know, a little bit baffling for our feeble human mind. So this became a major theological debate. So the, the Chalcedonian solution comes up with this idea that says, okay, Jesus Christ has, is, is, is um, one person with two natures, human and divine. So it sort of holds together the two natures in the single person of Jesus Christ. And this is a, a, a perfectly acceptable solution to the, the the theological problem. Armenians and other Oriental Orthodox, you know, the, the rejection was not necessarily totally immediate, especially among Armenians. But over time, the position that emerged is um, there, there's even problems with calling it miaphysite. But the best way to describe it is a miaphysite position that's based heavily in the work of Saint Cyril of Alexandria, and the, the way the best way of thinking about that is basically saying Jesus Christ has one nature, human and divine, unmixed, um, undivided. And it, it, it immediately is clear that that's, it's a little mystical. That still is a little hard because you say, wait, one nature, human and divine. How is that? Diff you know, that sounds like two to me. And this, you know, of course, you know, then there's plenty of centuries of, of theological <laughs> elaboration on how that works. But the the basic idea is that Armenians and other um, Oriental Orthodox and Miaphysite Christians were unwilling to separate even even to say one person in two natures. They didn't want to separate Jesus Christ in that way. Mm. And so for this materiality debate, then this means that you're holding together the human and the divine, the material and the spiritual in a different way than you're holding it together for for Western Christendom. And I've I've got this sort of hunch that um, that actually there's going to be a, there, there, there's 
there's a, a whole number of sort of philosophical debates we could enter into. The question of personhood, right? If if the formula is one, per, you know, one person in two natures, that that sets for centuries, actually, Western thinking about what it means to be a person, which means yeah. that an Armenian idea of personhood, and therefore we could say the foundation of human rights, would be a little bit different. So these are some of the things that I'm hoping to continue to explore. Um, but I, in this chapter, I've done it largely around the question of materiality. But I, I, I truly believe that there are a lot of implications for thinking this this theological difference. And I, I also I just want to sort of be clear, you know, th this theological difference has engendered a lot of violence over the mm. centuries. And I don't want to I don't want to say this is some kind of, you know, huge divide that, you know, should get in the way of ecumenical dialogue because it shouldn't. But I would say that, you know, the emphasis is different and and there's something worth exploring there. You know, again, the implication for what it means to be a person is a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for a long time, and I think the implications of this are super interesting and two questions of personhood, which relate to questions then, of course, of governance and representation. And I think this just would be a very interesting conversation. Maybe we can have this conversation at another time. Um, but it also speaks to it also just makes me think about your work as an anthropologist and as someone in the church. I think you're very interested in these questions of sort of being um, being of the world, being of the church in the world or religion in the world or whatever terms you want to use um, and not seeing it, in fact, as a duality, but as kind of one thing. Um, and your work is unpacking that. So I think that um, is also just something interesting for me to think about, about you, I guess. <laughs> so in, no. your, in this chapter, uh, you're able to connect concerns of the 7th century to concerns of the 21st. So I guess, can you just briefly explain to us this connection and maybe where you see similar points of contact uh, in your life and work? Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really that's a really cool question. And when I when when you said about the the the, the personal part of that, I think that's really really profound. Um, you know, so so basically, I, I start with you know our our earliest sort of theological reflections on the Christological question that I could find, as well as other debates around specifically around image, because the sort of the debate around icons and image making has always been connected to the question of Christology. Uh, you know, outside the Armenian church, the most famous articulation of this is St. John of Damascus, um, who writes during the, the major iconoclastic controversy um, of the sort of, you know, the 7th, 8th century. And he, uh, you know, he very clearly connects this sort of image-making question to, to Christological questions. And Vertanas Kerto, writing actually a little bit before even, um, is doing this as well, but of course his Christology is a little bit different. So um, this is this is part of what makes this really interesting to me. So, you know, I start with these reflections in order to bring them into conversation with these, you know, very contemporary philosophical debates. So that's one way that I... I really think about doing that. Um, and this is, you know, this is what I mean that I, 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 would, I, I would like to continue to think about how one sort of wields theology as social theory or wields theology as philosophy. You know, and I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not unique in doing this. You know, probably John Milbank is the most sophisticated person who has sort of worked with a, a kind of, you know, deep theology as a, as a part of a sort of philosophical conversation. Um, but you know, bringing the the specifics of the Armenian theological tradition into this conversation, I I think can do some really interesting things. So that's that's one way that I I, I do that. Um, you know, the the other thing that I think is really interesting to think about is that in in Armenian sort of exegetical techniques, you know, reading techniques. How do you read the Bible and how do you read other things? One of the major things is is you know what we might call a kind of understanding of types. That, you know, for instance, in, in Armenian history, my favorite use is, is you know, to, to, to think about Vartanots, right? You know, Saint, the famous Saint Vartan who defends Armenians from the Persians and keeps Armenians Christians. You know, this is like one of four, you know, Sunday school stories that most Armenians get, right? And, and Yerishe, the historian of, of Vartanots, the main historian of it, he already understands, he makes sense of Vartanots by appealing to the Maccabees. So he understands his place in history and the place in history of 
of Vartan as a kind of type of the Maccabees. So this is a, 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 a very different way of sort of thinking about the relationship between past and present. That's much different than a kind of historical understanding of it, right? And it's a bit anachronistic, but I think that there's a, you know, if you're careful, there is a useful anachronism that one can wield. I know that this is kind of anathema for certain kinds of historians, but I think that a, a carefully wielded anachronism can do some really powerful things. And, it, and it's, it's the way that the Armenian church and, you know, Armenian uh, theologians and thinkers have interpreted things for a long time. And what's super cool is that it, I like using the case of Vartan because, you know, already we have the idea that Vartan is a kind of, you know, a type. We make sense of him because of the Maccabees. Well, fast forward, you know, over a thousand years and the Battle of Sardarabad, famously, Bishop Karakin Hovsepian shows up at the front lines of the battle. This is part of, you know, sort of a famous uh, aspect of the battle in 1918. And during the Battle of Vartanots, you know, several thousand plus years before, famously one of the figures there was St. Gavant, the priest, who sort of preaches to Vartan before uh, and, and all of the soldiers before the battle. So what we can say is that if Vartan makes sense because of the Maccabees, Karakin Hosepian makes sense in part because of Vartanats. And I think that when you when you do this kind of careful um, and circumscribed anachronism, you can help place yourself in the present in in different ways, in ways that you know helps you make sense of the present in in different ways than you might if you were doing, you know, if you were working with a different kind of historicism. Uh, and, and that is kind of one of the ways that I think about, you know, my own work and, and, you know, my own, my own place in the church as well. You know, how does that, how does that make sense? You know, where do you find yourself? How do you deal with that? And I think, you know, using some of these, these past theologies or these past types to help you make sense of the present is a way to place yourself in a in a tradition, you know, tradition coming out of Assad as well. You know, his one of his very famous early essays is the idea of the anthropology of religion, where he articulates a, a kind of idea of tradition that is really really generative. Um, and the work of Alistair, Alistair McIntyre is really influential for me on that. And so, you know, if you think about yourself as being placed within a tradition. And that, of course, can be the church, that can be a religious tradition, but I think it can be an intellectual tradition as well. You know, one can think of what it means to do Armenian studies, actually, placed in a tradition of Armenian thinkers, and not just, you know, Ottoman historians, but also, you know, Armenian thinkers over the centuries. What does it mean to be placed in that tradition, and how do you make sense of that? How do you work in the present being placed in that tradition? And I think one, you know, sort of wielding these older texts in interesting ways, and two, a little bit of sort of creative anachronism um, can really help one place themselves in the present, especially, you know, within a tradition in the present that then becomes the ways that one can act in the present. It sets, it helps you, it helps you figure out, you know, how you are and who you want to be and how you want to act in the world. And that's, that's how I think about this. I mean, I'm really sympathetic uh, to this project. You're preaching to the choir, I guess, to make this <laughs> funny. Um, <laughs> but I think if what we're doing is ultimately a pursuit of making meaning, making sense, understanding, I think sometimes you do have to think out of the box, be creative. And as long as you're open, honest, and transparent about what you're doing, I think there's real value in just making connections. I mean, I forget what the term is, but when you have that kind of lateral thinking, it really does help help you see things, which ultimately I think is why we do the work that we do. It's about being able to see what you couldn't see before. And so, you know, I, for one, am bought in. So I guess let's just wrap up with (laughs) what's next for you. I know we've talked a little bit about this already, but what's, you know, what's, what's down the pipeline for you? Yeah. So this, this kind of conceptual project is something that I've, I've just been grappling with for a long time and I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to work through it in a number of ways, right? You know, so I've mentioned Christology. I've also talked about person, you know, you know, Christology in relation to materiality, but also in relation to personhood. Um, I've given a couple presentations on kind of what, what, what is an Armenian environmental theology? It does that exist? Could it exist? And that also comes back to this question, you know, um, how, how would the theology create a slightly different uh, response to where we are? 
Um, you know, personhood then leads on to questions of rights, um, as you said, representation. So I've got a whole kind of cluster of questions related to kind of Christology and theology and how it might, you know, intervene in certain contemporary conceptual uh theoretical and, and philosophical debate. So that's one big thing. Um, and then, you know, uh, as an anthropologist, you're always, you, you've always got to have your sort of next, you know, ethnographic project. <laughs> and um, that one, I've sort of, it's been a little bit slower, you know, working um, in New York, I, you know, I have less time to sort of travel around as one might. Um, also, no one is traveling around right now. So <laughs> that. Um, but be, before all of this, I, I had begun working a little bit thinking about the question of Syrian Armenian refugees coming to the West, whether that be, you know, Canada and America or, you know, to, to France, uh, and specifically thinking about coming to established Armenian communities, right? So, you know, France and America and Canada, where there are, you know, now well over 100-year-old communities, that migration is going to look different. You know, there's a possibility to, 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 to find a community that at least in some way resembles y yourself. Obviously, there are major differences, and that's what I want to look at. You know, what are the differences? What are the similarities? Is it helpful? Is it not helpful, actually, to have this community? Does it, you know, is it is it painful or is it, you know, does it force certain kinds of transformations? You know, if you were, say, a, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, hardcore socialist in, you know, Aleppo, and you find yourself in, you know, rural America with an Armenian church, is that actually helpful to have that Armenian community there? I don't know. And so, um, you know, there's been some work on uh, Armenian, Syrian Armenians going to Armenia, um, a decent amount of work on that journalistically. And I know um, Anahid Matosian's dissertation is in the, in the works here, working on that question as well as others. Um, but I've seen a lot less thinking about Syrian Armenians in the West. So that's the sort of ethnographic project that I've been thinking through. And, and, you know, again, you can see continuities there, which is to say, you know, the role of the church as an institution, uh, the role of the church um, as an institution in placing, you know, minority, you know, that sort of minority existence, all of those kinds of questions. So that's, that's the other big project there. Sounds great. Well, I'll be looking forward to discussing and reading those projects. And I guess in a similar note, we started this conversation pre-recording on Skype and the, the images we have are photos to represent ourselves. Yours is in Istanbul and mine is in Venice. So I feel like that's a good <laughs> concluding uh, summary for this conversation about Armenian communities, representation, and just uh, creating these communities across the world. So thanks for joining me. I had a great time speaking with you and uh, to be continued off Skype. Awesome. Thank you, Nora. This was lovely. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.